It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Well, we have been having a wonderful conversation with Ben before we hit the record button today. And I was going to ask him a question, you know, another one offline, off record. And then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to ask this on air because I'm super curious about this, Ben. So... I was going through some things in my closet last night and I came across a some some sort of poster that was rolled up and tucked away in my closet that really needs to be organized. And I opened it up, I unrolled it, and it was the poster I got from Marion Williamson's announcement when she was running for president. And Jason and I were at that event. We imagine you were there too, Ben, when she what's the name of that theater? Saban Theater? The Saban. Yes. Thank you. Yes. We were at that event and remind me when that was because, again, everything feels like a blur when we were actually (laughs) at in-person events. Was that this year or was that last year? That was last year. And she was actually, if I remember correctly, she was one of the very first people to even announce that she was running. Yes. No wonder it seems so long ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot, a now, lot has happened. <laughs> yeah, it really has. And now we have Biden, which is really exciting. And the reason I even thought about this situation is because we were going to record with you around the time that the votes were coming in after the election. And it just feels like so much has shifted even since then in just a few weeks. And, you know, it was so interesting now that I have talked more openly about who I voted for because for a while I, I kind of like to keep it private. But I'm proud to say that I voted for Biden and I'm thrilled that he's been selected. But it certainly was kind of sad at the same time because I was so thrilled when Marianne, you know, got involved with all of that and, and was up there on the stage in the debates and, and just knowing that more of the world was being exposed to her. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm just so curious how you're feeling about it, Ben, after you're working with her on the campaign. Oh, you know, I feel really similarly. You know, I'm really happy that we are going to be looking at four years without Trump in the White House. Really excited to see what Kamala and Joe do together. I'm really happy about his appointment for the UN, you know, and the list goes on. It's a, it's a really interesting time. Something that Marianne said, I think, I think that Marianne is just so eloquent. And she has always spoken to sort of the articulation of a deeper feeling that has resonated for me. And then I hear her speak it and I just say, wow, you know, I feel like you get me. And something that she said was in an article that she published, the election of Joe Biden isn't a healing, it's a reprieve. It's a reprieve from an active overt assault. And it's it's an opportunity for us to gather our forces and really go deeper for the real healing that does still need to be taking place, you know? And so that was the, you know, that that's the feeling. When on election day, you know, when I voted, I, I texted Marianne and I just said, you know, I really wish I was voting for you today. And that is how I felt. And like you said, those debates, you know, I got an Apple news alert 
on the night of the second Democratic debate that said, whether you're there for Bernie or Joe Biden, or just there for Marion Williamson, be there for the debates tonight, you know. <laughs> and I loved that. I just loved that. Even though they were kind of joking at how exotic and unusual she seemed to be in that context, I just was so, I felt empowered and emboldened by her. And I actually originally met her when she was running for Congress. She announced she was, she was running for Congress. A friend had invited me to go see Alanis Morissette at the Saban Theater. And I go and it's Alanis performs one song. And this woman named Marianne Williamson, who I'd never heard of, came out and announced she was running for Congress. And I was like, oh, this is a political event. You told me it was an Alanis Morissette show. <laughs> It's so funny because that's actually part of my journey falling in love with Marianne as well as I voted for her when she was running for Congress simply because all of my good friends, I, th I think including Jason, this is what, back in 2013 or so when she ran? Yeah, 2013 or maybe 14. I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, it's so hard to to keep track. But yeah. but it was, it was then where I, I think I either first heard of her or, or really like started paying more attention to her. And then, of course, I started reading her books and she's become one of my favorite people in this space. So it was really incredible. And then also after the results of the 2016 election, when Trump won, Marianne did this live video that was so incredibly moving. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget it because I was so upset at the results and then seeing her speak as you were saying and so eloquently and she's so comforting and she just puts things into perspective similar to you i mean i can it makes complete sense why you two are working together because you're so much in alignment with each other and in your perspectives and the work that you're doing to support people through their spiritual journeys and through finding more peace and perspective in life. I think that she's been, you know, a huge inspirer for me and has really awakened a lot of us, I think, to use our voices more and, you know, to to know that how we're feeling is then being articulated by someone else, I think gives us power to articulate how we're feeling. And yeah, yeah, that's a really similar thing. I, I met her when she was running for Congress. I saw the Alanis Morissette thing and I was like, I'm going to go talk to this woman. It was a huge event. There were a lot of people there. So I went ahead and emailed and I said, hey, I'm a publicist. I work with big celebrities. I like what she had to say. Let me know if I can help on the campaign. And, you know, before you know it, I'm in her apartment in West Hollywood and shaking hands with her, talking to her. And she was so new to me. I didn't know a single thing about her, didn't know anything about her, but I already had been teaching meditation privately and had already been practicing A Course in Miracles. I found A Course in Miracles when I was 10 years old. Wow. So all of the synchronicity was just perfect, you know? Yeah. I, it is really interesting because I didn't, I wouldn't have known about The Course in Miracles if it weren't for Marianne, you know? And it's like, to your point with her running for president, I remember my friend saying like, this woman doesn't have a chance. Like, even if they liked her, they just thought there's no way someone like her was going to get elected. And I thought, well, yes, the chances are slim, but we need someone up there representing these things. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful that she spoke her truth, despite the fact that, yeah, the country isn't fully ready for someone like that. You know, it's barely ready for a woman as it is, but a woman that's that progressive and 
talking about spirituality and, and, you know, it was such a stark contrast to, of course, all of the things that Trump's saying and doing. And I'm grateful for her as that reminder that, you know, it's not about finding that perfect president. Right. It's about being citizens. You know, it's about us being more conscious individuals. And and she, as messianic as she might be, she makes it so clear that it's like up to us, you know, that we have to be the ones that do it. And as much as she, you know, I think for a lot of the people in, you know, her, her super fan base, which is quite an extensive list of people, it's a long, it's a lot of people love her, you know. In that audience, there's a lot of people like that really look at her like she's the second coming. It's her, you know. And when I see her, I don't see that. What I see is I see me. She's like me to me, you know. And when I started to like explore her career more, I was like, I am so much like this woman. This is so crazy. I did not see that coming. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, the rest is really history. She was like, she was like, so you meditate with your PR clients, but you don't teach meditation? And I was like, no one's meditating. She was like, well, if people like you aren't teaching meditation, of course they're not meditating. <laughs> wow. What a gift to hear that from her. I know. And I was like, okay. <laughs> let's, she's always so clear, you know. And straightforward. Mm hmm. Yeah, I remember when I saw her speak live for the first time, it was actually also with Jason at the Saban. I just thought, wow, like she's just goes for it. She's she doesn't sugarcoat things. And that balance between she's so strong but soft at the same time, like that is inspiring to me too. I it's funny, Ben, because I see her as someone that I want to grow up to be like, mm-hmm. you know, like, like maybe I, to your point, it's interesting. Like when we see someone like that, like already that person, but have we just not like uh, brought that out of ourselves yet in a way? And like to hear how she brought this huge part of your career out of you through that one line that she said is really remarkable. Yeah. And that's a gift that she has. You know, that is a gift she has. I've seen with a lot of people, she's inspired a lot of people. And people she's barely even met say that she changed their lives, you know? And, you know, like you said, it's not that I think I'm already on her level, you know? It's like she's a different person in a lot of ways than me, you know? It's that I just see her excellence as an invitation to me level my game up and to be more involved myself and to learn more myself. She learns. She studies. She reads. She learns. She's out there leveling her game up. And I like that. I see it almost like a challenge. And to be able to work for her on her congressional campaign was incredible. She then later endorsed my first book and and was very supportive of it, shared a lot, was just, you know, complete angel to me. And then she texted me one day and she said, darling, I'm running for president. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that changed everything. And I was like, obviously, I'm quitting everything and working for you. <laughs> wow. And that's so remarkable as well. I would do the same thing in heartbeat. <laughs> oh, Jason, of course, it reminds me of uh, the time that I guess that was the first time I met her. Jason and Marianne were both speaking at this event. I wonder if you were there too, Ben. It was called Wellspring and it was in Palm Springs. And it was like an offshoot of Commune combined with Wanderlust. Yep. And were you there? Yes, I was there. I was there with, Unpl- I was there with Unplugged Meditation. Ah, which is also somebody that Jason's worked with. There's so many connections here that we're we're putting together. Jason had a book signing 
And he wrapped up his book signing. And before he could leave the table that he was at, Marion Williamson walked over to do her book signing. And she sat down right next to him and introduced herself to both of us so graciously before this huge line of people showed up for her. And we have a photo of that, which we'll put in the show notes at wellevator.com. If uh, the listener has not visited yet, you can go to W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com to see our show notes. We're going to put links to everything. We'll include photos, you know, anything that Ben speaks of today, including his amazing books we're going to dive into. All of that is there for you in one place at wellevator.com, along with this photo of Jason just grinning from ear to ear, holding up. And actually, Jason, not only are you sitting next to her with your book, but weren't you holding up her book? Did she sign it for you? Is that what happened? Yeah. I mean, it was such a special moment because I knew Marianne was going to be at Wellspring and and so many other wonderful friends and colleagues that I had never had a chance to have like a maybe a deeper or more meaningful interaction with. And I had planned on if I meet Marianne, I'm going to have her sign my original first run copy of A Return to Love. And it's like dog-eared and weathered. and, And I've had this book for so many years. And I thought if I catch her and it's a good moment, I'm just going to ask her to sign it. And lo and behold, she sits down right next to me for the book signing. And before she got started, we introduced ourselves and I said, Marianne, would you would you be so kind as to just autograph this book? And I pulled it out and it's this dog-eared weathered copy. And she's, oh, absolutely. And she reminds me of my mother. Yes, me too. Marianne, <laughs> her demeanor, her temperament, her even keel, her ferocity, her compassion. There are so many intrinsic elements of what I've gleaned from my interactions with her and then seeing her on a stage. Every single time I'm like, God, you remind me so much of my mom. And someday I hope to tell her that because it's 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 a compliment. The interesting thing too, Ben, that I wanted to go a little bit deeper, I guess, into sort of the intersection of of spirituality and politics. And I remember when I was watching Marianne speak the next day there would be some kind of caricature or Saturday Night Live skit or something on Last Week with John Oliver where they would be kind of making fun of the fact that she was introducing the ideas of love, compassion, equanimity, fairness into the political conversation. You know, it's it's almost like they were trying to make the idea of love and fairness and equanimity, an esoteric type of conversation. It's like, when did love become an esoteric conversation? Right. And so for me, I, I think my curiosity to you is when when we see in the political sphere and our culture so much, certainly this year, but especially coming out of the darkness the last four years during the current administration, we're seeing so much kind of anger of don't give people things for free. Don't support people. People ought to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. No free handouts. There's a lot of rhetoric of we take care of ourselves and anyone outside of our little circle, like good luck, fend for yourselves. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder why love, compassion, equanimity, and fairness seem to get such a visceral reaction from people on a spiritual level. What do you think that's about? Why do you think people are so resistant to the idea of helping and loving one another? Well, you know, you're you're bringing up a lot of really good points. You know, the the entire culture, the pop culture reality of all these different shows, these comedians, they have their audience based on making fun of people, you know? And so we don't have a culture that's that's built on really fairly discussing people. We have a culture that's built on making fun of people. And it's, you know, we could sit here and talk neuroscience, I think, you know, how 
you know, it's a, it's more shallow. It's easier to understand. It's a quicker process. You get a quicker laugh, a quicker dope release. We're in an instant gratification world. The, a lot of people don't realize Instagram literally means instant gratification, like Instagram. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's what it actually comes down to. Wow. That's what it's from. That's what the name means. And, um, oh my gosh. And so that's the field. That's like the the game board that we're playing on, you know. And then one little corner of the game board is politics, and and it unfortunately affects everything else. You know. And so there was there were definitely these very interesting conversations where it's like, when did prayer become something we can't talk about? When did love become so unusual and so strange? You know. And I think that I think our community learned a lot through all of that, you know, because Marianne is such a good teacher. She really reminded everyone who was willing to listen that the suffragette movement came from the spiritual community and the religious communities. The abolitionist movement came from the religious communities. You know, if we're going to talk spiritual, the forces of darkness, you know, the for- the lower nature, the forces of greed, uh, lower nature is how I refer to it in, in the book, Modern Spirituality, my, my newest book. But that's where the greed and the selfishness and those kinds of energy dynamics come into play. There are animalistic tendencies. The idea with government is that when we come together, we can override, we can overcome our lower, more basic needs. If we're all working together, we can have our all of our different needs met more efficiently. Many hands make light work. And so over time, over thousands of years, we've had to battle against the lower nature. The Bible says we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against principalities and powers. And that means a principality is the perfect, pure, archetypal concentration of a concept like greed. We're not battling against this person. We're battling against the corruption in their consciousness that's causing them to partner with the principality, greed. So it's this idea that every soul is you know, of infinite value. Every individual person is, of course, valuable and lovable and good. And then corruption sets in. And, you know, the reason we don't want to give each other the freebies or the handouts, so to speak, is partially because we're afraid that there really won't be enough to go around and I won't get what I need. But also because, you know, propaganda is real and active and marketing, PR, all of these things are essentially, we talk about marketing psychology. Another word for marketing psychology is called mind control. So there's all these different, really subtle mind control marketing psychology techniques worked into campaigns, some more sophisticated than others. And they, they, they say, hey, don't give that person a handout, you know, and they, they overemphasize, they They'll market and promote, don't do this handout. Meanwhile, they'll silently, without a trace, facilitate an enormous handout to a different population. So it's like we're not really, you know, if you look at what we're really doing, we're not really that opposed to hands out, handouts. What we seem to be opposed to is knowing about them. You know, the wow, we like super rich people. We worship them like royalty. It's like the royalty in the world today. We could hardly care about someone who's noble or wise. We're more attracted to someone who's ultra rich. 
Yeah, and this this is a an interesting offshoot in this terms of creating sort of deities in our culture, pseudo deities of rich people, famous people, celebrities, etc., that are worshipped as our kings and our queen queens in modern society. The concept of materialism is interesting, I think, in in relation to spirituality, because to me, if one is to adopt a a philosophy or belief system, I suppose that God is all, spirit is all then money and houses and fancy watches and yachts and Lamborghinis are, are all God, just as much as the pebble, the stone, the person living in the dirt. I mean, it's, if it's all God, then the interesting thing comes in to this concept of unchecked capitalism and materialism. And it's something that I struggle with sometimes because I acknowledge that I have material desires. And then sometimes I find myself being like, you don't, you know, you don't really need that. Why do you want that? What do you think that thing is going to say about you? Do you think it's going to get you more approval, attention, significance, recognition? Is that why you want it? Do you want it because all your friends are getting it? The idea, I don't know, the intersection of spirituality and capitalism and materialism is such a nuanced conversation. I guess my, my question is for both of you, you know, how do we reconcile our material desires and this incredible unchecked wealth and seeing people rewarded for it with our spiritual practice in life? And how does that manifest for both of you? Well, I'll go first. The The idea that initially comes to mind is a metaphysical universal law. And this is, you know, it's up there with the law of attraction and repulsion, but it's not as popular. And it's called the law of consecration. To consecrate something is to make it sacred, to make it holy. And the law of consecration indicates and says that all things are holy. All things belong to God. So even when you have wealth, when you do have a car or a possession of any kind, you're temporarily the custodian of that thing, but it's actually God's. So the metaphysical law of consecration is the recognition that if a door is not locked, anyone can go in and whoever has the key can go in. We have rules and laws and boundaries that we've put into place around ownership to protect ownership. We say possession slash ownership is nine-tenths of the law. Theoretically, I don't know how true that statement is, but you know the, the idea is that First and foremost, everything in the entire universe belongs to God. Everything that lives in the universe is a creation of God. And if there is life, there's divinity. So life is spirit, life is divinity. That's the that's the premise of this idea. And when we think that way, we realize, yeah, everybody does need a home. One of the things that Marianne Williamson said that really, really stood out to me was this country should not be run like a business. This country should be run like a family. And let me tell you a couple things. This house, you know, if I'm the father of this house, guess what? Everyone gets somewhere safe and warm to sleep. And if I'm the father of this house, everyone gets something to eat. Everyone gets education. Everyone gets health care. Everyone gets clothes. Everyone gets to use a clean bathroom to bathe themselves and take care of themselves. And that's how you run a family. And we're clearly not doing that. We're, you know, we, we have separate families. We have separate tribes, separate separate, 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 you know, my religion, your religion, my community, your community, etc. you know. So a lot of this... A lot of these questions are more existential, and it seems to me, and then I want to hear from you, Whitney, it seems to me that 
all this talk of a massive awakening, of a global transformation, of a pole shift, of whatever people are saying, I think it's happening. And I think it's happening because we're asking these exact questions. Because what happens when you ask a question, answers manifest. Wow. You know, this also reminds me of, and Jason, you're going to have to help me remember the name of the speaker that we saw years ago at another conference. It was longevity conference. And there was a woman whose name is escaping me at the moment that was talking about different levels of consciousness. Is this ringing a bell to you, Jason? And she was saying how like we can be, it's almost like an apartment building and we'll be on one floor, but somebody could be on the floor underneath or above. And that's not to say that one is better than the other, but that we're just simply on a different floor than somebody else. And if we look at our consciousness or our perspectives on lives. And and one point that you make in your book, Modern Spirituality, Ben, is about the stories we tell ourselves and how we have these core beliefs, right? Jason, do you remember the name of that speaker? She's also an author. It was, I think, Caroline Mice. Yes, it was. Thank you. And I loved that. That really stuck with me because it was such a great visual perspective on this and how it's not that we're supposed to get in our ego and say like, well, I'm more evolved than you, which I think is a huge issue we have. We have we see this play out in politics, of course. It's kind of like, I'm better than you. My perspectives, who we have all this fact checking that goes on about like, did you say the right or wrong thing? I mean, what's sad to me about politics is that it really does separate us. We're not at a place of unity yet. We're at a place of people looking at this side versus that side, right versus wrong. And, you know, this is part of the reason I felt uncomfortable talking about who I was voting for, even though anyone who knows me, it's pretty clear that I'm not Republican. But also, I realize that I've been in this bubble of of my own thoughts, my own beliefs, and there's so much about the Republican perspective or people that support Donald Trump that I don't understand. So part of my evolution has been not trying to, I have to walk my talk, right? Like I I shouldn't be judging other people just because they are Republican, just because they did vote for Donald Trump. And that was an interesting thing that came up a lot this year. Like some of my friends who I consider very spiritual did get to this place where they were saying things like, well, if you say that you're voting for Donald Trump, like I'm going to debate you on it or I'm not going to be friends with you anymore. And I, I kept wondering, like, is that really the best way to go about this? Like just because of somebody who they're voting for or voted for, like you're going to cut them out of your life. I'm curious about your perspectives on that, Ben. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really tricky one. You know, it's a bipolar political system, left and right, you know, and so the challenge that we see with all of that is that we're not meant to be a, a bipolar individuals. We're not meant to be bipolar nation. We're multifaceted. We have a lot that we want to do and a lot that we want to experience and a lot of op- opinions that that move around, you know, to have such a large nation with so much influence over so many people have an institutionalized bipolar system is kind of insane. So that's a bummer to begin with. Um, But when it comes to our relationships, because of this bipolarity, of course, we're going to have people who are on one end or the other of that bipolarity. And, you know, it's, it's a tricky one for me too, because the only thing that, you know, evil needs to succeed is for good people to do nothing. 
so it's a tricky situation because I, we have to speak truth. Like you mentioned earlier when talking about Marianne Williamson, what you said was she speaks her truth. One thing that we talked about on the campaign, that she was speaking the big truth. The big truth with the capital T, the truth that's going to always be true. You know, and which is more than just her truth. It's more than just my truth. It's more than just your truth. It's, it's universal truths, you know, and, and all of these different ideas, we have to realize we're dealing with minds of people and the mind of an individual who was raised in a certain religion. What's a universal truth to this person? Well, that God is this and people are that and the devil is this. That's a universal truth to this person, you know. Meanwhile, the English language is improving in its ability to be utilitarian. It's getting better and better, more advanced with every generation. We're, we're using the language more effectively, and we're still looking at the old interpretations of these ancient words. English is utilitarian, and ancient languages like Aramaic and Greek and Latin and Sanskrit and Pali, these languages are poetic. So those ancient languages have a magic to them, a poetic symbolism programmed into them, and we're trying to study them with utilitarian minds. So too many people are looking at these old things and completely misunderstanding them, completely misinterpreting them. And so what they believe is spiritual is actually a distorted belief around something, you know. So there's there's a question at play about what truth is. And this is where every individual has to show up for ourselves. And we have to say, look, I'm alive right now, and only I'm in charge of my soul, and only I'm in charge of my body and my mind. And so I'm going to make the decisions that are going to make the most sense for what I'm seeing. I'm going to try to do the right thing that, that I see is the right thing to do, you know? And, and that's what I see Marianne doing. She's trying to do the right thing. She ran because she thinks that that was the right thing to do. She didn't run because she had professional or career ambitions in that direction. I know this woman. She's not ambitious in the traditional sense. She likes to do what the right thing is, you know? And so I think that when we when we're looking at these tricky situations like spirituality and politics, it comes down to what does spirituality mean to you? And how is that going to translate into these different things? And I think that there's, here's the thing, some stuff is not cool. And so it's really hard to say, oh, but is it my, is it my place to correct you on that? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is your place to correct someone on their dysfunctional view. Sometimes it is the right thing to do to say something that might even seem uncouth or faux pas or impolite in a situation where, you know, something Marianne says, she says, it's not negative to yell fire if the house is actually on fire. Mm, wow. Yes. that See, and that is such a great way to describe this, right? Like, because again, it gives you a visual and, and that actually answers the question that I was thinking of as you were speaking, Ben, which is, you know, of course, there's things about Donald Trump that I am strongly against. And of course, like we have to stand up against things like racism and any of these major judgments and discriminations we have. And if somebody's representing that, certainly I'm not in alignment with it. But it, it does come back to this idea of like, well, I'm, of course, strongly against those ideas, but I'm sure there's things that appeal to people that are outside of those ideas, right? Like, 
maybe I'm just from a place of of overly compassion, but like I imagine there are good qualities in Donald Trump that some people see and I might not be able to see them, but like there's got to be more to him than just those belief systems. Right. And so there are a couple of interesting things that you're that you're bringing up. It's like when you really sit at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Donald Trump did these daily briefings and they were like two hours long. And some people sat there and watched them every single day. And I was there with my dad and he was one of those people that watched them every single day. And we sure learned a lot about each other on that visit. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and uh, that was what was so interesting to me is if you really just sit there and watch him speak, you see Donald Trump being very relatable. He's relatable and he's kind of casual. And, you know, and so there's a lot of people that just kind of feel like he's speaking to them. He says things like they're like they make perfect sense. He'll say things, even unfortunately, kind of most importantly, he'll say things that are not true to justify certain things. You know, I don't have an immediate example, but there was a period of time when I was working for a presidential candidate and we were really fact-checking ourselves and fact-checking what he was saying and doing so that we could make sure that we were campaigning ethically. And, you know, what I really discovered was this is a master manipulator we're dealing with. And it's hard because our true supporter is not going to want to hear that and they're not going to be receptive to that. You know, and the same goes for, you know, someone who's like a true blue Biden supporter. I also was, I was, I guess you could say happy with the choice. I, I mean, I voted for Biden. I guess you could say I was happy with it. I wasn't happy with who my, it's not who I voted for in the primary. I voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary. And I found Bernie Sanders through Marianne Williamson. She introduced me to him. And that's how that came through. But the the thing that I really see with all of it is like this idea that it's even the racism. The racism is not something that these people are saying, I'm openly a racist person. And so I'm going to elect my racist candidate. We have these unconscious things that make us make decisions. And when they say, oh, you're all, you're all just calling us racist. Oh, every single Republican's racist. And, you know, and so they... They start to feel offended. They feel shamed. You know, I know a lot of Republicans that don't identify as racist, you know. And I also know some of them have very seriously dysfunctional views of people of other races. Very limited thinking. And I, I have to say, I'm, I do have a little bit of a concern that it might be aggravated through isolation and quarantine. Part of how I learned about the world is travel, going to Egypt, going to different nations in Africa, going to the Philippines, going to Thailand, going to Costa Rica, going to different parts of Mexico. That's how I learned. That's how I became cultured, you know, and that's part of how I learned, wow, you know, these things that I was taught when I was a little kid are one teeny tiny little part of a much bigger puzzle. Right. And that also reminds me of something that you cover in your book about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's such a fascinating thing to examine because as you show in there, which is on page 83, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> um, that's I have to say, that's one of my favorite. Yeah. In Modern Spirituality, page 83 is one of my favorite pages in the book. Uh, it's such a colorful, beautiful page. It's one of my favorite pages in the book. 
It is. <laughs> I mean, I love who doesn't love all these colors. And and obviously, I'm, I'm a visual learner, too. So these always really help me. And you show this pyramid of these needs. And at the very base, it's the physiological needs. And I think when we go back to this idea of being on on different floors of an apartment building or levels of consciousness, some people are really just focused on their basic needs. And not everybody has an easy time meeting those needs. So to your point, when somebody comes around and is really good at manipulating the public and convincing them that they're going to meet those needs, which is not just happening in our politics, of course. This happens in our relationships, our personal relationships with family members and friends and romantic partners. Like somebody can easily convince us that they're going to meet our needs. And if since that is so important to us as human beings, we might disregard all of these other elements or we might not be ready to level up to the other needs like our esteem, right? Our cognitive, our self-actualization. And that also reminds me of something that came across our email inbox recently for me and Jason, which was somebody who enrolled in one of our courses through somebody like she was referred to our course from somebody else. So she didn't know me or Jason and she didn't even really know much about our course, but she signed up for it. And then within a day of signing up, emailed us saying that she wanted to be taken out of the course because we covered meditation. (laughs) And it was such a fascinating email to receive because our course is not about meditation, but meditation is a huge part of the work that Jason and I do. And, and that's why it's so wonderful to have you on here, Ben, because we love exploring this and what it means to meditate and be spiritual. And so we integrate that into a lot of our work. And this course specifically is the consistency code. And that course is about creating habits that are sustainable for your life. And we believe that meditation is either a path to achieving your habits, but also something that should become a habit for you, you know? And so anyway, we mentioned meditation in one of our emails and got this two emails from this woman, like almost as if she was panicking. And she said, I'm not comfortable with meditation. And so I want to be taken out of this course. And again, like it's not a meditation course. It's like a five minute part of an hour long training that we did. But that one five minutes really disturbed her. And I I guess stepping back, I was thinking, wow, I wish I understood. Like, what is it about meditation that frightens this woman so much? Well, interesting. You know, it's like the the religious consciousness. I like religion. I like spirituality. I like religions. I like studying different religions. The difference between religious and spiritual, religious is someone who's going to rigidly commit to structures or rules that they don't necessarily understand or that there aren't clear intentions behind. And spiritual is someone who's going to be more present, going to make decisions accordingly. And yeah, and actually my first book, Practical Meditation for Beginners, was intended to present meditation in a secular, non-religious, scientific, uh, therapeutically, psychologically viable context. So that you could, you know, practice different meditation techniques and even more advanced techniques. I got a lot of backlash from that book. You'd, you'd think a book called Practical Meditation for Beginners would not be that big of a deal, but... Uh, sounds controversial, Ben, honestly. It sounds yeah. controversial. <laughs> well, it kind of was for two main reasons. One direction was got some backlash from, from the Buddhist and Hindu communities 
saying that some of the techniques I was introducing were not for beginners and that they were very advanced techniques and that they should they have no place in a beginner's book. Another sort of kind of criticism I received was from the Christian community saying that meditation is actually one of the ways that the devil gets people to let go of Jesus so demons can occupy them, so you can be possessed by demons. And I was like, yikes, okay, that's, first of all, it it didn't feel like you understood meditation. I also felt like, hey, maybe read my book, um, because you're not just emptying your brain out, you know. So there was a a whole lot to unpack. And that was part of why I wrote my second book, Meditations on Christ, to be able to introduce meditation and meditation techniques to a Christian audience that understood it a little bit better. There are people who aren't Christian who feel similarly about meditation. They don't understand it. They don't know what it is. But really, what I'm seeing is like this movement towards a massive bipolarity. One of my friends, Jerry Powell, who's the owner of Rhythmia Life Advancement Center in Costa Rica, where I teach my retreats twice a year, he said, as soon as COVID happened, I was there when the lockdowns happened. We had to end my retreat early. They sent me back to America. And he said, two things are going to happen. Church is going to go way, way up. And so is sin. <laughs> so some people get really, really particular in one direction. Other people get particular in another direction. What we're really seeing is the fact that there's a major unfolding of massive and collective stressors all around us, and people don't know how to deal with it. You know, and you want to say, "Oh, meditation can help you deal with it." That's not going to work for everybody because some people, like you're bringing up, are even going to get triggered by that. You know, and so in my mind. Meditation is really important, but the reason, you know, my third book is Daily Mindfulness. I put an emphasis on physical exercises, more so in that one, as well as philosophical reflections. And then the most recent book, Modern Spirituality, I really openly say like, look, all of the ancient traditions have a couple things in common. One, everyone is good. Everyone's divine in their original nature. So we get to sort of like back up a little bit on our harsh judgments of each other. Another thing that they all agree on is that there will be a great event that takes place. They all prophesy of a great event that will take place that will initiate an era of peace. To the Christians, it will be the second coming of Christ. He will return in glory and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord and he will reign. He will rule as king of earth for a thousand years of peace. In the Buddhist tradition, there is the future and final Buddha, whose name is Maitreya. And the Maitreya will incarnate and reign and rule over a thousand years of peace. And everyone in the world will be blessed by this peace through this Maitreya Buddha. In the Hindu traditions, we have the Kalki avatar, who is the final incarnation of Krishna. We also, of course, know that Krishna and Christ have similar etymological roots. Christ, the one of the core most ancient definitions of the word Christ means truth. One of the oldest definitions of the word Krishna means truth. Um, So we're talking about the truth here. And when you start to see other traditions saying similar prophecies about the future, there might be something to it. And when you start to study those prophecies, you start to realize, wow, they're all talking about the same thing. And it's not necessarily the way we've always thought about it. It's not necessarily that one guy 
is going to come and fix it all, that something's going to change. And when we think about Christ coming back, and of course, how could I leave out the Jewish tradition? They don't even think the Messiah came in the first place. So they're still waiting for the Messiah who will set everyone free and reign over a peaceful world. You know, And so it's like all these different things, all of our ancient ancestors have been talking about something's going to happen and we're all going to get along. Well, my theory on it is, ta-da, it's us. We're here. We are the Buddha. We are the Christ. You know, And some people find that offensive. Look, if you're Christian, you don't understand your own religion if you're not trying to be more like Jesus. If you're Buddhist, you don't understand your own religion if you're not trying to be, become your own Buddha. You know, And so it's like the, the idea in my mind is, this is not a little thing that we're trying to undertake. This is a huge thing that all of our ancestors, that no one in history has ever been able to do, which is inaugurate a peaceful, collaborative sense across the globe. Something that you talked about, Whitney, is levels of consciousness, as described by Caroline Mace. The two things to look at with consciousness is states and stages. States of consciousness versus stages of consciousness. And the the elevator example is good, but I'm going to use more real-world examples. Someone who has been praying and meditating and trying to open their mind and trying to advance themselves and seeking truth over a long period of time will accumulate. They'll get better and better. They'll learn. And that will take them to a higher stage of consciousness. Someone who does ayahuasca is going to enter into a very high state of consciousness. So the state of consciousness is temporary, and the stage of consciousness is consistent. A stage of consciousness is related to more like climate, whereas a state of consciousness is like the weather. So my stage of consciousness is who I am, how I am, how I'm showing up in the world, the progression of of who I've become, who I am and who I'm becoming. That's the stage of consciousness. The state of consciousness is I'm triggered right now or I'm enlightened right now because I'm super present. And you know the list goes on. When we start to realize that just with one person, you can have varying combinations of states and stages of consciousness varying combinations of understandings and misunderstandings about the world, about the universe, about each other and ourselves. And then we realize that there's 7 billion of us. It's like, okay, everyone take a deep breath. (laughs) We got our work cut out for us. I think that's such a wonderful distinction, Ben. And and it brought up so many things for me to, to, to respond to that wonderful explanation. The first thing, which I have to laugh at myself, is that I have noticed over the years that I have a bit of jealousy flare up sometimes when I perceive someone has had a certain spiritual experience. This is maybe not jealousy. Maybe um, the more accurate terminology would be like, what am I doing wrong or what's wrong with me? And specific examples of this would be when I have spoken to friends and acquaintances, many of which we probably all know of, say, their experience with lucid dreaming and being able to somehow manipulate an out-of-body experience for themselves on a consistent level and being like, ooh, I want to learn how to do that and doing the techniques that they've shown and then not being able to do it and then being like, well, why the hell did it work for them? And I think that there's this fascinating aspect to people striving to, quote, be more spiritual, be more conscious, self-aware, enlightened, 
that almost I've noticed myself try and gamify it, put it in a context of like, well, you need to do these steps so you can become more self-aware like that person or lucid dream like that person or be able to channel spirits like that person. And I found that it just doesn't work that way. It's almost as if, forgive me if I may be using this term incorrectly, like there's an inexplicable, almost wordless sense of grace in moments that I have had where I have felt so deeply connected to the earth life, another person. I mean, real experiences of oneness that words almost can't encapsulate. And it wasn't because I did certain steps to get there, or I hacked it, or had a formula to feel oneness. But maybe it's these years of practice you describe, the accumulation of these experiences, maybe we do get graced with these kind of moments that we can't invoke instantly. Maybe they just come to us. It's such a fascinating thing that I reflect on these moments of my life that I don't, it, it wasn't because it was like, all right, when you're open all your chakras, bud, here we go. Feel oneness. You ready? All the work we've done to get to this moment of oneness. It's like it just happened without me forcing or invoking it. Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the higher ways, and I think that that's a gift. And so thank you for sharing that. The In Kabbalah, they say there are two paths back to God. And one path is the path of pain. And it's not even really technically a path because you're already on it. All of us are automatically on the path of pain. And then there's the path of what they call Torah and mitzvot, which essentially amounts to study and practice aka joy, the path of pain versus the path of joy, the automatic path of the default reaction to life, and then the path of study and practice. And the thing is, no, in, in those individual moments that you're describing, it doesn't sound like you did a ritual and got the right crystals and the right candle and, and said the right mantra. You were present. And sometimes to experience presence does take Torah and mitzvot. It does take study and practice over years of time. And what I loved, I loved that you are working so much with the, the concept of consistency. I think that when he said that the class was called the consistency code, if I'm, if I'm right. Yep. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. Doing something consistent, consistently. Look, when I'm meditating and practicing, am I over here thinking, I'm going to be a Jesus and I'm going to go perform miracles? <laughs> no, that's not the deal. You know, it's because I feel called to a higher thing. So I implement my practice, but we have to be humble also. There has to be a sense of proportion also. And when it does come to those special gifts, like people who, you know, have instantaneous healings or out-of-body experiences or what we call spiritually transformative experiences, STEs, <laughs> spiritually transformative experiences <laughs> of any kind. Um, those STEs, um, the, th the thing is, the, the real gifts, that's really what I'm talking about. Less about the individual gift, the moments, but more about the gifts, the skills, someone who can lucid dream on command, someone who you know, really makes great decisions, someone who can like really create beautiful art, someone who can just sing beautifully, someone who can write really, really well, and someone who can understand certain things well. All of these are gifts. And so when, when you think about it like a gift versus like a competition or a comparative thing, it's, I think that it's helpful to start to think a little bit like in the secular spiritual mythos, of comic books and stories and narratives like Superman. Look, Superman 
came from Krypton. His planet was dying. They put him in a pod. They sent him to Earth. And Earth is a totally different solar system than where he's from. So his skin and his eyes and everything reacts differently to the yellow sun. Where he's from, there's a red sun. And so the yellow sun gives him all these powers on this planet. And, you know, he, over time, starts to meet all these other members of the Justice League or whatever. And everyone has different powers and different gifts because not everyone's a Kryptonian. He's a Kryptonian. And, you know, for me, you could, you could, you could line a, a whole building with Kryp- Kryptonite and it wouldn't affect me in the same way that it would affect Kal-El, Superman, <laughs> because I'm not a Kryptonian. When I was a little kid, I had astral projection experiences and lucid dreaming and blah, blah, blah. And those are things that I never necessarily really made a long-term life practice of creating in my life. Some people think that that's really good. For me, when you start to find yourself saying, okay, I'm going to channel this thing or channel this entity or this spirit, or I'm going to really do this magical ritual. To me, all of that feels like a distraction from the thing that the universe is taking you through, the thing that God is already taking you through. These could be ways to cope through it. They could be ways to reinforce intentions. But when we start to put the power in the rose quartz rather than in your heart, you're missing the point. The point of You know, let's say you're doing a love spell ritual. The point of having the pink and the red candles and the rose petals and the rose oil and the rose quartz and all that kind of, you know, lovely pink and red stuff is to get you in the mood so that your energy can be ready to go for love, to get you ready for love. The whole thing of setting an intention around abundance isn't to supernaturally bend the laws of the universe so that you win the lottery. It's, I always say, if you're trying to manifest winning the lottery, you're, you don't understand manifesting. <laughs> What's better is you trying to manifest getting better and better at the things you're already pretty good at. You know, generating wealth from your own thing, you know, from your own gifts, from your own space. You know, some people are are channelers. Maybe you're not a channeler. Maybe you have other gifts, you know. So this thing that you've been talking about in studying so many world religion and seeing so many commonalities and similar archetypes, similar themes, similar life lessons. I'm curious to loop that back, Ben, to suffering and the idea of suffering as a means or a mechanism to growth and spiritual evolution. And this is a really kind of a nuanced thing, because if we look especially at the suffering of the current year that we're in, again, I'm not blaming 2020, but this has been a year of, in many cases, a lot of deep pain and collective suffering and individual suffering. And certainly it would seem that to loop that back to the religious thread throughs that the concept of Armageddon, the concept of Kali Yuga, all of these kind of themes before these these archetypes of saviors or messiahs return is sort of a collapse, destruction, breakdown, and reformation of earth and society. So it, with suffering, it, it makes me think about, you know, are we all kind of subconsciously to a degree 
bringing about a proverbial Armageddon Kali Yuga and rebirth of the planet because maybe we all know that it needs to be transformed. And I guess it's a longer question of what is the the purposefulness of suffering in all of this, not on an individual level, but the collective suffering we're all going through right now. What do you think is the purpose of all of it? Well, Jason, easy question. (laughs) (laughs) Super easy. Uh, No, well, what I see, first of all, you're bringing up such important stuff. You know, there's individual suffering and collective suffering. One of the things that I loved about A Course in Miracles and still love about A Course in Miracles is there's only one miracle that ever needs to be performed. And that miracle must be performed in infinite ways and is the correction of our worldview. It's the transition from a perspective based on division and fear and lack to a perspective based on unity and love and uh, infinite resources. So the idea of all this suffering, there's this idea like you're talking about breaking down society, rebuilding the collapse and the rebuild. You know, what that brings up for me is the fact that Society is a manifestation of our collective expressions. You know, it's what we've done together. It's what we've created together. Society is what we've done. You know, nature is what God did, and society is what we've done. The reality of our connection to God takes us into this deep place where we start to realize, hey, there's some stuff we know that we don't realize we know. And of course, there's plenty of things that we don't know, that we don't realize that we don't know. But it's the part of wisdom to say, you know, sometimes things must be disassembled and rethought and recreated. And it's, you know, in the Judeo-Christian scriptures, in the beginning, God created. That what's the first action we ever know about God is creativity, creation, taking something and, you know, creating something out of nothing, creating something new. To create, to access our creativity is to create something new. And so what I see right now is sort of like the, A, the need for a renaissance of creativity when it comes to government and society. And so that's sort of one of the most important things I see. But then also, B, the recognition that we aren't separate from nature and therefore not separate from God. And so when we have to, like, let's say, you know, you two are like, you know what, 2020 is coming. We're going to have our New Year resolutions good to go, and let's go get our our BMI done so we know what our body fat percentage is, we know what our muscle percentage is, and let's set some real goals for ourselves. Well, to build more muscle, you've got to break down what's there. you got to break it down so that there's room for something new. There's so much that could happen, but sometimes there's so much that could happen that you don't even have the container for it. And so I see this thing that we are collectively, maybe unconsciously co-creating. One notion of the end time, so to speak, that I was raised with is this idea that the final war would not be a war of weapons. It would be a war of, in, of ideas and intelligences, which we are clearly in now. You know, we're clearly there. We're, we're in a world of ideas. And so it does stand to reason that if we want to have a new millennium resolution together, like Jason and Whitney might have a, a resolution to get in the best shape of their lives in 2021, you know, humanity might say, why don't we get our shit together as a new year resolution? 
And some of that is going to be hard. If you've ever tried to do perfect push-ups, there's only so many you can do before your butt starts sticking up in the air and you start to like maybe not go down all the way. Why? Because it's hard. You know, because you're breaking down those muscle fibers. It's not as easy. And now what do you got to do? You got to rest a little bit so that those muscle fibers, those tears, those micro contusions that have happened because of the exercise now can actually be healed and fill in. And what happens? The muscle is stronger. The muscle is more toned. When you break a bone, if you reset that bone correctly and you nurture it and you facilitate the correct conditions for healing, it will be stronger where it was broken. And so there are areas in our society where we can say, look, let's do this. I'm not saying we need to take a baseball bat to the shins of society, but maybe take society to the gym, you know, take society to the gym. Let's do some lat pull downs as a society. And what I, what I mean is not necessarily actual fitness exercise by the humans of society. What I mean is let's look at it as a collaborative art project. And sometimes in art, you've got to break it down. You've got to trim stuff away. In design and in art, it's not always about adding more. Sometimes it's about taking something away too. So there's an exercise, a building, a strengthening. And then there's also a finesse and a style and an art to it all. And that's why in my book, I I say, I talk about the art of healing. I talk about healing as an art, not the healing arts as in I'm going to come heal you because I'm an artist and I'm a healer and healer healing is my modality or whatever, even though that's a thing too. What I'm talking about is the art of your own life. Um, An expression that I use in the book is in modern spirituality is uh, Akashic theater. We talk often, we sometimes hear people talk about the Akashic records. The Akashic records are everything that's ever taken place in the entire universe is recorded. It's imprinted in the universe. So it can be accessed through the Akasha, the Akashic records. And so what I like to think of it is an, a theater. It's an Akashic theater. The Akashic theater is, well, how does Jason want, who is Jason? What is this character of Jason? What is this character of Whitney? Who is Ben Decker? We get to self-create. We're the director of the play that we're in and we get to deliver it. You know, we hear, you learn, you know, the test, the true test of the human's character is when they are, you know, unwitnessed, when they're doing things, when no one sees them, you know, What are they doing in private behind closed doors? That's who they are. Something Marianne says is, you're only as sick as your secrets. And I believe that's from the 12-step community. You're only as sick as your secrets, you know? And so it's like, there's something very powerful about the year 2020. Yes, we can say 2020 brought all kinds of craziness, but 2020 really, it's almost like the 2020 vision. It's like we just put our glasses on. We collectively put our glasses on and now we're looking around and seeing how filthy the kitchen really is, you know, how filthy the whole house really is, the challenges that really do surround us because we can see them right now. Sure, we didn't have a particular pandemic that we could name that was one thing covering the entire globe, but actually we kind of did. And it was selfishness, and it was greed, and it was delusion, and it was separativeness, and all these other things that we could sit here and say that have been plaguing uh, the entire planet, or that they are a global pandemic, you know. And so I kind of see this year as like a time when we are seeing what's really there, 
seeing what's already there. And then for me, I'm, you know, maybe I'm a little bit of an ambitious person. So for me, I'm like, look, if Jason gets it, if Whitney gets it, if Marianne gets it, if all these people that are listening to this podcast get it, we might be able to get into the best shape of our lives, so to speak. You know, if we're in it together, we might be able to do something. When you have a personal trainer, if you've ever worked with a personal trainer, they do that diagnostic, they do that assessment, you see them, you see the, the, what they've demonstrated with their own body. And it's like, you know what? I might be able to do something. I might be able to get into excellent shape because of the possibility that this person created you know, by being here in this process with me. And I think that that's what Marianne represents. And I think that's what you guys represent with your show. And I, I strive to represent that also with the content that I release into the world. We are the personal trainers. We're the AA sponsor that humanity needs right now, you know? And does the AA sponsor have all the answers? No. The AA sponsor also needs to work really hard on their own self-care. The AA sponsor also has to make sure they don't get triggered. The personal trainer still has to go to the gym, you know? And so that's what I kind of liked about Marianne running for president is I think one of the first things I said after it was all very public, I said, Marianne Williamson is the AA sponsor America needs right now. <laughs> yes, yes, so true. And, you know, I love the subject matter too, Ben, because the way that I, I think was originally introduced to your work was I was volunteering for a while at Den Meditation, which was a, a transformative experience for me. Cool. Love that. Love that. Love the Den. Yes, me too. And and for the listener, the Den is, I believe, I know they, they shut down their La Brea location where I used to go. That's correct, right, Ben? Yes, they just have they the did. one in the valley uh, in the studio city. Mm-hmm. But tons of online, you know, it's just COVID stuff, you know. Right. Uh, I, I'm optimistic that they'll be able to reopen. No one has taken over that space. No one has remodeled it. It's still as is, just empty. So I'm Gosh. optimistic throwing that out I- there. Yes. Oh, I hope so. Because um, if you are in Los Angeles as a listener um, or visiting, uh, Den Meditation is a magical place, truly. And it was it was a huge part of my meditation journey because when I was volunteering there, I was going several times a week. I probably did some weeks of every single day taking classes from people like Ben and going to different workshops. And we actually had Jason's 40th birthday party there. They donated the space for us, which was like an incredibly magical experience. And, and I remember, yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. And Tal, who runs it, is just such an incredible person. And every teacher there, you know, where I would just have these transformative experiences with them during class, after class, and on and on. And what was interesting for about that experience is just that, A, I learned about all these different forms of meditation. You know, probably before I started going there, I didn't realize how many different ways you could meditate and how many different styles there are, which is something that I think was so important to learn because I think a lot of people have this very specific view of meditation. And I certainly did previous to that. And then also just seeing the humanity and the teachers, you know, to your point, Ben, these people are up there leading these classes, leading these, you know, workshops and, and practices. But every class was a little bit different depending on where that teacher was at that day, you know, and, and what the students were like in the class, the collective energy that was brought to that room. And this is true, I'm sure, of every meditation space, not just the den, but 
being there to witness all the different experiences and know that like, just like yoga, you know, the reason it's called yoga practice is that it's not about mastering it. I've been doing yoga myself for 14 plus years and I don't feel anywhere close to mastering it because it's an ongoing practice. It's not about becoming this perfect yogi or a perfect meditator. It's showing up and knowing that the teacher is on the journey just like you are as a student. Definitely, you know, and it's uh, the expression that we sometimes say is we're in the era of self-exploration, direct experience versus authoritarian indoctrination. And it does express itself in this new kind of spirituality, the modern spirituality of people who have totally different backgrounds, totally different religions, totally different proclivities who sit down together to meditate. That's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal that that we can have. One of my roommates is from Syria. One of my roommates is from, two of them are from Japan. One's from Australia, two are from Russia. And it's like when we meditate together, it is so meaningful to me because we're in a world where this is even possible. The fact that we can sit together and have these different backgrounds, but also find a new way to, to express and experience spirituality together. And uh, yeah, and so sometimes we say, when I did my meditation teacher trainings, when I was teaching, I was certifying all these different teachers and everything who are all now amazing teachers out in the world. I'm like, geez, wow, you all took my work. Okay, cool. Got to do something new. <laughs> but yeah, when I was in that process, what we, what we emphasized was being guide on the side versus a sage on the stage. So the, the idea is the namaste, like in yoga. Namaste is the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. What I was taught about Jesus when I was growing up, I was taught that he was my brother and I'm about to go do that. That's what I was taught. If you believe in him, you're going to go do greater things than him. So the divine that's in him is also in you. I was told my parents named Benjamin. One of the definitions of what that word means means child of God. I was raised being told you're a son of God. Jesus is also a son of God. He's going to show you what to do, you know? And it's the idea that even Jesus was supposed to be a guide. You know, we have a world where so many people are like, I worship you, Jesus. You're the only God, Jesus. You know, And it's like, worship however you want. I just don't resonate with some of these older ways of thinking. I feel like that Christ consciousness that's in me, it's a potential. It's a potential attainment. I was also raised to believe that we didn't have hell in the kind of Christianity that I was raised in. And uh, the highest place in heaven that you could go is when you would actually become a god or a goddess. So there's a lot of humility that comes. It's the opposite of what you think. You might think that there's crazy arrogance that comes in when you think that you will become a god, and which I guess it can. But it's really, in its most sincere expression, humility that happens when you realize, hey, right now, all those little screw-ups that you have, all those weird defects that you're navigating right now, there's a possibility for all of those to be purified and for you to literally manifest divine consciousness, aka become a god, aka become just like Christ, aka become a Buddha or a Christ or whatever. And so it is, for me at least, this idea of in my own private meditation, in the temple of my own heart, I am, me and God have a relationship where I'm trying to let God change me so I can be the, a perfect prototype of what God wants me to be. But then when I'm out in the world 
and I'm interacting with you guys, I'm one of you guys. I'm not coming to you saying like, oh, dun da 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 I'm so special and I have all this information and I'm a god, you know? <laughs> I love that little sound effect. <laughs> dun da 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 Yeah, we're just here together. We're here together. And, and that's what has been so powerful about this movement with the opening of Unplugged Meditation and the Den Meditation and other businesses similar in scope where we get to experience people who have wonderful gifts. One of my clients was like, dude, what the fuck are you? Where did you come from? After one of our sessions, he was like, well, what the, what was that? And it's like, dude, I'm not a Kryptonian. I'm you. I'm just like you. You know, we're, we're all in this together. You know, in, in some moments, you know what? I need more than anything. I need another person to be the strong one. So I don't have to be in some moments, you know? I think that the thing you talk about humility, Ben, that's such a, it's such an interesting thing when you look at the arc of when a particular human being can get a certain level of attention, notoriety, significance, fame in the spiritual community that we're speaking, our, our community, general community that we're in the wellness spiritual community, that maintaining one's perspective and humility when there are so many temptations for the ego is really an interesting thing to look at. And, and again, almost archetypically in a lot of the mythologies and religions, this idea of the shift from... uh I suppose the question, what do I want toward what does God want or what does life want? And I sit with that question a lot in terms of how can I, <laughs> how can I, how can I get better at detecting the nuance between what my ego is communicating it wants versus quietly and patiently listening for what God or life wants to show me? I am it, I, it, it's an interesting thing because I, I literally will sit physically between like, is this ego? Is this life? Is this God? What is this voice? What is, where is it coming from? And, and it's almost like getting attuned to the subtleties in my being, letting me know whether that's ego or whether that's God, life, spirit. It's really fascinating. Well, and you got to be so honest with yourself in that, you know, you just got to, that's where the humility comes into play. You know, it's like the, you, you've got to be really, really honest. You know, my does not want me to, so that I'm going to, so what I'm going to do is blank. You know, uh, the, the question of like, what's the right thing to do? And, you know, that I, I put that in my book, there's in modern spirituality, there's um, a section about our purpose. And um, the, the idea, the way I explore it and the way I present it is the notion that we have one shared purpose, and that is to you know, love and grow. And um, <clears throat> that's your purpose. And when it comes down to it, there are a lot of different ways that that can express. There are a lot of different ways that that can happen, things that you can do to to do that. And, and the way I show it in the book, I, and I keep forgetting that I actually included all this in the book. I love that fourth book, Modern Spirituality. I know we were joking beforehand, you're not supposed to like pick a favorite. That's totally the favorite. And um, I talk about um, a, a thousand-armed bodhisattva, this, this archetypal entity that is living for the highest possible good. In the Buddhist tradition, they believe that Christ 
was a bodhisattva. So there's a thousand armed bodhisattva. I, I always pronounce the name incorrectly, uh, but I do know it. It's Avalokitesvara, something like that, Avalokitesvara. And she's got a thousand arms, and in each of her hands is a different tool. Um, and, you know, you, I, I sometimes joke, it's like she would just have one, she would only need two hands. She would just need a phone with all, with a thousand apps on it. But the thing is, it's about expressing that higher divine purpose in your creative way. Life is a co-creation with God. That's why it's the art of healing, you know, and the art of healing um, implies and indicates that there's a creative license given to you. And so it's not that every single thing God needs to control. Something my mother told me when I was a kid, I said, uh, she said, well, did you pray about that? And it was something that didn't seem like something we would talk about at church. It was something that didn't seem like we would talk to God about. It was, you know, I was I was going to acting school and I wanted to get this new agent and I must have been 13 or 14 years old. I And my mom said, well, did you pray about it? Why don't you pray about it? And I was like, but I don't think it matters to God. And she said, if it matters to you, it matters to God. And so there's there's like a whole, there's a couple different facets to an idea there where it's like, look, if it's important to you, it's important to God. And, and then within that, some of these things are our creative decisions. We get to decide how we do our hair. We get to decide what clothes we wear. We get to decide the title of the book. Maybe God has a really good idea for your next book, Jason. And maybe he's down with you picking whatever title you feel like going for, you know? So it's, it's kind of like balancing that, knowing that we're a part of a process. Sometimes we call it a plan, the great plan um, for evolution and for happiness. And then there's another component of our life that's not part of that plan. It's actually an open space where it's actually programmed into the plan for you to have free will, for you to be totally creative in some of those areas. And yes, the ego can say, well, this is a free will move, you know, but that's where, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Do whatever you want. But guess what? There's other laws in this universe, like karma, you know, you're going to have to deal with it. You know, if it's really God's, if it's really, really pure, and if it's really, really God giving you that thing, then you're going to have good karma or merit or no karma or whatever versus doing something that's, you know, legitimately born of the lower nature. So one of the ways that I have like a little bit of a chart in modern spirituality, and it says higher nature and lower nature, and the higher nature is... God. It's that part of you that overlaps with God. And then the lower nature is the part of you that overlaps with the animal kingdom, you know? And so there are certain qualities. And in my book, Meditations on Christ, I emphasize these. In the Bible, in Galatians, there's something called the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, generosity, faith, kindness, goodness. And those things manifest when you are actually tuned into God, when you're actually tuned into your higher nature. And then there are things like greed and lust and violence that manifest when you are operating out of the lower nature or the ego. So that's like the diagnostic I work with. So talking about the rubber meets the road as we're 
as we're coming toward probably closer to the finish line of this particular episode. And this is maybe a question for for not just you, Ben, but you, Whitney, as well. How do you wrestle with that? Like, what are, hmm, how do I phrase this question? Discerning between ego and the higher calling, like literally what are some of the techniques, if any, that either of you use to try and discern between those voices? And does it get any easier depending on the technique? And are, are there even techniques to use for this? Prayer. I would say prayer. Asking. You know, just getting into a comfortable place. I like to meditate a little before and after prayer to really make sure I'm focused on on what I'm doing. And, you know, sometimes they say prayer is you talking to God, meditation is you listening. And so if there's something that's really, really challenging, you just got to pray about it, you know. And, And sometimes, you know, just the other day, I was really distressed about something, you know, kind of big, kind of larger in the world. I was like looking at what's happening in the world. I follow the UN briefings. Um, I was really concerned about a typhoon happening in the Philippines and some other things and sort of like, what was the right thing for me to do right now? Because I felt so powerless in the face of all these different challenges. And all I got in the prayer was, you have a personal training session scheduled and you need to have your pre-workout 30 minutes before that. And it was such, and I laughed because it was like, it was like just a realization where it's like, look, I have stuff to do right now. I'm just going to stick to my commitments right now. I'm going to live today. Some of these things are not going to be solved right there when we meditate about them or we pray about them. But I would say even if you don't have a full understanding of what God means to you and you don't have a whole storyline that really works for you about what that is, just pray and ask to be guided. Ask for that guidance. Ask for the clarity. Ask for the signs and the synchronicity. And then move in faith. Take action based on on that, that inspiration or that thought or what feels right for you. And these are the creative decisions. This is one of those things where it's like, hey, sometimes we make good calls, sometimes we don't. And I'd be interested, Whitney, what, what works for you in that way. Well, I got so caught up in listening to you, Ben, that I forgot how Jason even phrased his question. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's about the higher nature and the lower nature. How do we discern? Are there techniques or practices or exercises to fall back on when we don't know what that idea or that desire is coming from? Is this desire ego-based or is this desire sacred and divine? Wow. Yeah. It's interesting because listening to your response, Ben, like I I was reflecting on my relationship with religion, spirituality, God, prayer, et cetera. And it's ever evolving. You know, I've gone through phases where I was going to church and I was reading the Bible and I was really being very mindful, just like I've gone through phases where I have meditated more frequently than others and times where I've journaled or been really into my yoga practice. And and it's all just been a lot of noticing, I suppose, and uh, experimenting, for lack of a better word, just, just trying to see what feels right to me. You know, I've, I've gone through those phases of, of practicing manifestation and visualization. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so funny too hearing some of your comments about how we can get so confused about what it means to actually manifest, you know, and, uh, I, I'm, I'm more just curious about it all, you know, and, and I, I suppose right now, as I don't have a regular practice with any of that, I've just really been, 
simply noticing myself each day and trying to take the pressure off of doing any of these things the right way and even giving myself grace because I haven't been consistent, you know, as as much as we advocate for consistency, sometimes my consistency is simply just feeling into myself each day and listening, you know, to your point, Ben, like listening to yourself, listening to God, listening to other people. I learned so much from all of that and that practice of of listening more than speaking or listening even more than taking action that has helped me reflect and and understand my actions and my thoughts and all of that a lot better than when I'm constantly moving. You know, recently Jason and I have spoken so much about how we don't resonate with productivity and hustle as much as we find that simply resting and giving ourselves permission to do nothing in a way you can i was going to say accomplish so much but i even that word accomplish i think ties back into this hustle culture i feel like sometimes doing less or or simply doing nothing teaches me as much if not more than trying to do all of these different practices in hopes that i'm going to gain something from them i mean that's huge you know it's just it's like deeper than just saying, okay, that kind of is a greedy thought or a greedy idea. So it's from my lower nature. Boom. Next. You know, like you're saying, feeling into yourself, that is a practice and it's more intimate than a practice that someone else can assign you. You know, it's, it's developing a relationship with, with the incarnation that you're, that you are. I think that that's sort of what Jason was really saying. He was like, look, you know, you know, tuning into those subtleties, those little nuances, you, you can start to feel sometimes they even recommend, um, sometimes I'll even do guided um, active imagination dialogues is what we call them, active imagination dialogues, where you will sit there. One thing you can do is, you know, have Voltaire and Mozart and Jesus sit in a room and let them know what you're concerned about and hear their advice. Another thing you could do is sit there and have the different aspects of yourself sit in a council together. And, you know, there's a part of me over there that really kind of still does like that hustle thing and kind of likes it, you know, kind of likes to be hopped up on caffeine and get a bunch of stuff done and high five and booyah. And then there's another part of me over there that's like super zen and is like, no, man, that's not the way. You know, let it flow, bro. You know, and then there's another part of me that is, you know, you know, insert different aspects of ourselves all around, you know, and you can really hear the different parts of your own mind and the different dimensions of yourself explaining themselves and saying what they need and where they came from. And and you sort of develop that discernment and that relationship with yourself. I think the biggest thing is knowing your identity. Who are you? And that's a really hard one. But what it's come down to for me is I'm a good person trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be a loving person. And I know that I'm in this big, big universe with all kinds of stuff that I'm never going to understand, but I want to understand it. You know, and the way of the Bodhisattva, there's a Bodhisattva vow. And it says, the Dharma is unknowable. I vow to know it. And it's like the meaning of life, the purpose of life, the purpose of this whole universe is unknowable, but I vow to know it. 
you know, and it's just that paradox existing within the dimension of a paradox, allowing oneself to expand and knowing that it's not always going to be perfect. Really, really beautiful, really artistic way of dancing and moving through through life. Yes, I, I love that. That's a really eloquent way of, of explaining all and summarizing this, because I think that there's a big difference between, as you were saying, like, manifesting because you want to make more money, right? Like, oh, I'm going to use this tactic to get something that my ego really wants, right? Or like, I think that is going to serve me. Or, you know, I, I used to do all sorts of practices, hoping that they would help me manifest the right uh, partner in my life, like a romantic partner, right? And I remember like going through these phases of like, okay, I'm going to try repeating this mantra over and over again. And, and like you were saying, I'm going to bring in the rose quartz and I'm going to grid my house and I'm going to, you know, write out a list of everything I want. And I was like, just so actively pressing like myself constantly to do the right things in order to bring this person about in my life. And ultimately, it was like forcing something as opposed to allowing it. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that allowing process. But I think I mean, uh, there's nothing wrong with going through those practices, right? Because I certainly love rose quartz. <laughs> I love uh, music and mantras and meditate, all of these things that we've been talking about. I love them. But there's a big difference between enjoying them for the sake of enjoying them versus like using them for some ego-based gain or or trying to manipulate something to get what what I really want versus just simply being with them. So I think all of this is is such a wonderful balance between maybe some of these longer, more existential musings and actually practical things that we can do every day to, you know, feel better in our bodies, which is kind of, it seems that in our entire conversation today, there seems to be a interesting balance of sort of these maybe more long form esoteric musings about who am I? What am I? What is my purpose? What am I here to do? Where's my popcorn? You know, the important questions in life. And then the practical sort of rubber meets the road, as you said, Ben, daily practices that we can use to cultivate more balance, more peace, more wholeness, more stillness, more action, whatever it is that wants to arise in us. I don't know. I just feel like we could go on literally for hours and hours with you. And as you said, uh, offline, off recording, we definitely need to hang out because it's been far too long. And uh, and I just have loved immensely the the deep dive we've taken with you today. For you, yeah, it's, it's just been, it feels like we could literally have one of those five hour Joe Rogan podcasts with you, which maybe, maybe for the future, we'll, we'll sit down when we hang out and have a cup of tea and record that too. Yeah, I'm here for it. <laughs> So for you, dear listener, for any of the wonderful resources that Benjamin has mentioned today, including his newest book, Modern Spirituality, we will have links to all of those resources, all of his books, his website, his social media, the address where you can send him a homing pigeon, homemade gingerbread cookies. You know, I don't know what's on your holiday list this year, Ben. If people want to send you things, what do you want? <laughs> oh, I would like world peace for Christmas. I think for me, I'm trying so hard to just stay so healthy through this whole thing. I saw something that said, after COVID, you'll either be a monk, a hunk, a chunk, or a drunk. <laughs> Very well said. <laughs> I was like, I would like to be a hunky monk, please. 
<laughs> That's amazing. I feel that maybe mm, there's an idea in there, Ben. I think we're gonna need we're gonna need to have a brainstorm sesh offline. The hunky monks. Rebrand yourself into that. I'm gonna look on Instagram right now and see if there is a hunky monk. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure someone's got it. I'm, I'm far from a monk and I'm far from a hunk. So got a ways to got a ways to go. Oh, give yourself more credit, Ben. Give yourself more credit. So yes, dear listener, thank you for getting uncomfortable with us today. If you were uncomfortable, I don't know. You might have been comfortable the whole time, but maybe we touched on some stuff that made you uncomfortable. Either way, thanks for being here on this journey, Ben. Thank you so much for such a deep, juicy, beautiful and love-filled episode. And for all of the things, go to our website, which is wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com for the show notes for this episode, links to Ben's book, all of his wonderful work. And we will catch you soon with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.